Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and play styles of all of the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't work, what led to better games, and, well, what didn't. And we talk about it all. And in this episode, we are going to continue to discuss the 5th edition DMG. We are on Chapter 3 this time, and we have a wonderful guest to share with you, and her name is Lauren Urban. Good evening, I am Lauren. here to be shared with you. That's right. Yes. I didn't tell you that part when I invited you on the show, did I? No, but I'm okay. I'll roll with this. This is fine. Hi, it is my pleasure to be here and talk about creating adventures. We are so happy to have you, Lauren. Thank you. I am excited. As always, you, of course, also know that my my good friend and co-host, Branda Stoddard, is here with us as well. I'm excited about talking about this one tonight. Um, I think this is a, a super interesting chapter um, for what it tries to do in formatting and just sparking ideas. Um, there are also some parts that I want to point out as sort of, so then they took this and expanded it out to a whole new thing that I think is going to be exciting. Okay. So um, just as an overview what what are I'm just throwing this out here? No pressure, Lauren, for you to answer first. But you are the guest, so I will give you you know first right of refusal for every question. Uh, but do you do you have any sort of overall thoughts for this chapter? So in general, I think it's a great chapter. It is a chapter that does not stand alone because it is that it really is the place in where any dungeon master is going to go to if they are homebrewing their own adventure and it's a little deceptive because it's the title creating adventures and it's got all this stuff in there and you really can use it to create an adventure but it is very referential to a bunch of other chapters in the dmg so i think it's worth knowing that and tempering expectations a little bit because it's it's a little bit of a um if you're like, well, this is the chapter I have to read in order to do this. And then, you know, there's all these other chapters that you really <laughs> should look over that are just as good. But this is kind of a, a great place to start. And um, I like a lot of the stuff that's in here. And we'll, we'll get into some specifics. But I, th I think overall, it's, it's a great chapter. It's got a, a lot of really good advice. And it manages to take what can be a, a very broad topic, which is go write your own novel and give you some <laughs> structure on how to do that. Now, given what you just said, you know, one of the things that we've talked about in the other couple of episodes, which of course you have not had the ability to listen to yet um, because they're not released yet. But one of the things that has been brought up is the position of the chapter in the book itself. Do you think it's in the right place? I think so, because it really does lay a foundation for a lot of the other stuff that it does reference. You know, that that criticism that I had in that, no, you can't just read this. There's going to be other things you have to read. I think most of the other stuff you have to read is later, is referenced later. It's, you know, the NPCs and environments and treasure, everything else that is the fill in the gap parts of it is should be later. This is the foundation. How do you come up with the plot, the beginning, middle, and end? You know, what are the main big chunks of things that you need in order to write your own adventure for your own D&D game are in here. And anything that you need to go further reading to is further in the book. So it kind of makes sense to me. 
So I think that uh, I, I like where it's positioned, maybe for sort of the opposite reason. We've just gotten through two pretty intensive chapters on the setting side, and this is sort of really getting to, okay, but what does that setting mean to the players? Um, I'm thinking especially about the wilderness goals table and how all of the like terrain and like, engagement with the physical space of your setting is going to matter so much there. Um, and you're going to see that as an aspect of all of the adventure types because this has to happen in some kind of space. And so they teach you to establish the space before they teach you to put the verb in. If you yeah. see what I mean. Oh no, I, that, that totally makes sense to me. Although um, that was one of the, the few criticisms I actually had of this chapter involved specifically the two adventure types that they split adventures up into and how they preface both of them. But I don't know if we're getting ahead of ourselves if we start well, there. I, I mean, you, you say, you say two types, I kind of see four. I really think they're trying to carve out mysteries and intrigues as three and four off of event and uh, location. See, and I feel like, I feel like that too, but I feel like the way they introduce it is they basically say, here's these two types and then they give you four of them. See, I think it's a problem of presentation in that sure, case. Sure. The, the sort of um, introductory paragraph after adventure types just doesn't keep in mind what the rest of the section does. Like, <laughs> I, I, well, like that to me is a typo. To be to be completely honest with you, I think they like thinking about what would happen to me if I were writing this. I would have sat down to write, written th that opening material. Uh, covered location and event, and then realized I had types three and four, but forgotten about my intro text. And so, then your editor didn't catch it either. <laughs> yeah, and then your editor's like, what's going on? I don't mind that mystery and intrigue are under event because of the way it's presented as... Essentially, what they're saying is that location-based adventures are, are very heavily... <sighs> for lack of a better term, dungeon-focused. This is Dungeon of the Mad sure. Mage. This is mm -hmm. sure. a place you're going to. This is, uh, you know, the style of adventure that you're writing is the the get-through-a-dungeon stuff. It is, um, tomb, it's the second half of Tomb of Annihilation. It's any of that. Whereas event-based adventures is going to be Water Deep Dragon Heist. It's going to be the, the stuff in where it's things that happen, not places. And so I can see why mystery and intrigue would be versions of the event-based adventure because those are not necessarily about the location. They're about the event that's happened. They're just very specific to it and they tend to have their own specific feel and tropes. My issue, and I'm not even really saying this is wrong, but it's wrong for me specifically, so they open adventure types and they kind of talk about it in that way, in the event way of, you know, it's a focus on a place, it's a focus on a location. And it says building an event-based adventure is more work than building a location-based one. I don't agree with that. And that is because I am the type of DM, DM that does not like running dungeons. I am not a dungeon crawl DM. I am not 
the kind of DM that would run Dungeon of the Man Mage or or Tomb of Annihilation, because those, even if you're totally theater of the mind, take away any prep for maps and terrain and any of that, you're still needing to create a space. And it is important in those adventures, uh, in the the location-based ones, it is important to not be making it up as you go along, really. <laughs> you can't, uh, I think it is much more difficult to freeform, make a, a dungeon up on the fly, uh, especially if you're looking for something more intricate that's going, you're going to want a map to, even if you don't actually make one. And so for me, because event-based stuff is more nebulous because it's about a lot more of the the relationships and the interactions between characters and you can make yep. up more of the stuff on the fly that you need to in order to make things work. I look at location-based adventures and I go, holy mackerel, is that a lot of work? So for the actual DMG to to literally say that <laughs> one type of adventure is more work than the other it really gives you an idea of the headspace of the people who were writing the DMG at the time and the sure. idea that a dungeon, you know, and I'm being, this is broad strokes here, but the idea that a dungeon type adventure is ease is uh, easier to create than a mystery type adventure. Whereas I look at that and I go, no, no, don't make me make a map. No. <laughs> so I, I agree with you and I disagree with you at the same time. So let me explain what I mean by that. I agree that I, it chafes me when the Dungeon Master's Guide says stuff like that. Like, oh, this, this kind is harder than that kind. Like I, I, because I think people are different, and I think that people have different ways of approaching problems and different levels of experience. And I think that just inherently, as a human being, the more that we do things and practice a certain type or a certain style, and also the caveat that usually when we do something that way over and over, it's because we like that particular style. So then it's actually easier for us as it goes. Yeah. And with practice, we get better at things, right? So that feels easier, but someone else might be coming from the totally opposite end and say, well, I always run dungeons or I always run the, you know, desecrated temple, or I always run the big castle that has to be, you know, it's, you know, haunted or whatever. Like, and they'll say, oh, that type of thing is so much more easy for me. And so they might agree with that statement. But for me, it's the fact that they even made that statement in the first place place because I feel like, well, who are you to tell me which one should be harder, you know? So yeah. that's one thing. But the, but the other thing is, from the other perspective, um, I think that the reason that they say that the, the sort of site-based or the sort of dungeon-based adventures is easier is because it's sort of one thing. You map it, you fill it up, it has kind of one story or one one goal that's easy to see. Oh, we got to get this item at the bottom of the dungeon, or we got to kill the main person at the bottom of the dungeon, or we have to, you know, find the the secret passageway through the cavern to get out the other side and survive, or whatever it is. It has one specific easy goal. Whereas if you're in an event based thing, you might be in a large wilderness area or in a large town, and for a lot of people, it is really a lot harder to off the cuff improv a new npc that 
is in that area or you know the when when the party invariably when the players do something that you weren't expecting to be able to respond to that in an easy way not everybody actually finds that that easy oh and i i happen to agree with you like i for me it's easier right yeah and i i do agree a hundred percent that there are going to be people who are going to be the opposite of me who are going to look at the location-based stuff and see the because really the the honest answer here is both of these are work they're just different types of work and the in my opinion the location-based stuff takes more prep but is less intensive when it comes to having to make up stuff on the fly in in the moment because you're doing more prep because there's more concrete things so it's not Mm -hmm. that one is more work or less work than the other they're different work and they're going to appeal to different dungeon masters so that's my problem is it's not that one is easier or harder or more work or less work than the other it's the fact that the dmg would call that out because yeah it's gonna it's going to lead new dungeon masters to feel like oh if this is more work, if they read that line in event-based adventures, like this, the event-based adventure is more work than the location-based one, I can see a lot of D- DMs, first-time DMs or newer DMs going, oh, maybe I should then do the location-based stuff and I should do a, a dungeon crawl. When in their head, what's gotten them into the idea of creating their own adventure is they they want to do a heist. Or they want to do uh, a big sprawling, you know, epic. They want to do something that's mm-hmm. more event based. They they have a cool villain in mind, and they want to have this political intrigue campaign, and that's what excites them. But now they are steered just by this little. And I'm, it is one line, so I shouldn't overstate. It's just one line. I shouldn't. I mean, put so much. The, the rest of the line is, but here's how to make it easy. True, true, but... In defense of the text. In defense of the text, absolutely. And once again, if you look just on a size, you know, if if you don't see mysteries and intrigues as making the entire thing bigger, if you kind of consider them their own bits of the chapter, the location-based stuff and the event-based stuff are basically the same size as far as the number of pages. So it's... that's my one quibble, I will say. I do like a lot of the stuff that's in there. I like the, um, even though I myself am not someone who will roll on a table, I love tables because they're a list of ideas. And mm-hmm. for me, that is invaluable as a DM. Is is I am very rarely going to randomly roll on a table, but I will read every single one and gain five or six ideas off of them. Uh, So I love that they have all the tables. I love that it does break down um, something into, especially something like event-based adventures into a manageable thing. Okay. You know, it, you want to come up with your own grand epic Lord of the Rings style adventure. Well, where do you begin? Well, we're going to start here. We're going to go in this direction. You're going to plan this out. You're going to, you know, write down a couple of ideas and kind of work your way through a process that can seem very, nebulous when you just sit down with a blank page. I, I, would, I definitely agree that the, the tables are very good for defeating that paralysis of the blank page. Yeah. Um, which is, I, I mean, I struggle with it and I've been doing this a minute. So I assume everyone finds it to be terrifying. Yes. <laughs> yep. hundred percent terrifying. Yeah. It is, it is, 
sometimes easier, especially in the middle of a lo- for me for in the middle of a long running campaign because I have players who have done stuff. Oh, <laughs> uh, sure. Once the campaign is off to the races, like everything is just all right, well. What was a thread that I either came up with when I was brainstorming the campaign or the the players left hanging last time? Yeah. Right. Everything can follow on what came from, what came before, or you have a, a weird new idea. You know. One of the other uh, things, um, backing up a bit before we plow through the entire chapter, one of the other things that I actually really liked, it's right at the beginning of the chapter, um, when it's talking about the elements of a great adventure, it actually calls out tropes and talks about how sometimes a familiar trope is not a bad way to begin. Like, the yep. cliche of starting in a tavern um for a lot of people, that is like an eye roll. That is, uh, mm-hmm. but those are usually players and DMs who have done that a lot and they are looking for something new. But if you've never played D&D before, or if maybe you've only played once or twice, or if you've only ever seen like adventure fantasy movies and stuff, the idea of having that you meet in a tavern moment feels very classic. It feels exciting. It is, oh, I get to do this now. Um, and so I liked that it, gave permission to have dragons to start in a tavern to you know be a to steal some of the big giant ideas that are out there and make them your own but don't be afraid to to lean on them a little bit because i i've been dming for at least a decade now and i still start games in a tavern and I have yet to have somebody eye roll at me because now I've done it enough that I can subvert some of the starting in a tavern or I know how to do it well or, you know. Right. Like, like just, just giving the scene your, your attention and sort of affection as a creator, like it, it starts to differentiate, it starts to sort of cleave off from whatever that, I guess, scorned platonic ideal. Yeah. Is that a, is that a thing? The platonic ideal that we don't like? <laughs> yeah. Um, whatever that is, it starts to individuate. Part of the problem is it's not seen as a platonic ideal yet. It's still seen as boring cliche. And I think that's, that's where the eye roll comes from. But, you know, to be fair in, in the book, it even says, you know, that might induce, I mean, it doesn't say this specifically, but it might induce an eye roll. But if you throw a twist in there, just don't be afraid to throw one tiny twist and then it's going to make it not cliche anymore. Yeah. And that's uh, and that's the probably the best advice in that particular little page section. So so in elements of a great adventure, there's one of these that I feel is calling me out very unkindly, and <laughs> I, I have stern words. Um, a clear focus on the present. Uh, I, I feel very called out by that <laughs> because uh, it, my games and Sam, don't laugh too hard. This is you too, buddy. Um, <laughs> that's why I'm laughing. <laughs> uh, my my games really engage with like lore. The PCs are grappling with uh, what has come before, what the people, you know, the mistakes that people made before them, um, and often trying to like either paper over those mistakes and keep things going so that things can go on, or trying to go deeper and actually repair those things, but. The way this talks about sort of a clear focus in the present, it doesn't sort of feel right to, to me. 
Um, not that it isn't also a good way to do things, but the the text's treatment of it as like really lingering in lore and sort of lavishing that uh, like here are the people who came before you and why they did what they did. No, I think that I think those kinds of stories are great, actually. Well, so here's here's the one thing I want to say about that. I agree with you, and I and I think that brings up a a sort of um, God. I feel like this isn't really a fair critique, a little bit, but I when I read this chapter, I have a little bit of a slight dissonance because in some of the chapter, it feels like they're talking to me about how to write a short adventure for like one session or maybe two sessions. Sure. And in some of the text, it feels like they're talking about a a vast expansive campaign. And the thing about that is, is that I approach those two things very differently. So if you're talking to me about a one shot telling me that the past is prologue, but the players don't really give a crap about it. And we can just move on to focusing on the present I'm okay with that in a one shot because that's a very sort of different milieu to me. Whereas for a long campaign, I want the lore. I want the, you know, the, the things we're talking about are things that previous adventuring parties did in this, in this setting. And that means that you yourself, my group of players sitting in front of me, when we play again in this setting, you're going to be running across pieces of lore that were put into the historical place because your characters are doing it right now. Right, and that's a that's a continuity thing that I really enjoy about world building and playing D anD D over you know across years and things like that because it gives you that sort of joy of hey things are progressing and changing and it's a living world and things are different and you know what if I play in a game and then two years later I'm playing in another game in that same setting and something comes up that one of my previous characters did that feels really good oh for I, sure you know sure. so. I, so I like that. So I do think there's two things at play here, though. And the first thing being that lore devoid of context in a D&D game is just an info dump. And while, oh, sure. And so oh, I for sure. think what this clear focus on the present bit in here, at least the way that I read it, it was not that you know, you shouldn't have story and backstory and history and lore and all of that, but that um, it shouldn't be an info dump just for the sake of world building. It should be related to something that's happening now. So there's nothing wrong with, you know, they say instead of dealing with what happened in the past an adventure should focus on describing the present situation. Now the present situation is what happened to lead up to this but it should be the direct history. Now, does that include a little bit of a lore dump of, oh, hey, there was this, you know, thing that happened that led up to this current event and knowing the past is important for understanding the present. Um, And I think the reason it's, and, and maybe it could have been written better that way, but the reason that I read it that way is because the next thing is heroes who matter. And so it's the idea of your the players, your heroes are not spectators. They are active participants. And so the things that they are engaging with, with should have, uh, there should be decisions and consequences and things that they can do to change the present. So while knowing the lore of a situation might be important, it should be relevant to 
players making a relevant choice in the moment. And as long as those are tied together, I think that's where you get the nice harmony. And I don't think it's a mistake for these two sections to be right next to each other. Um, you know, you're going to focus on the present and it's going to be people doing things right now that can affect it. Um, your players should never feel like they're learning about something that has happened that they don't have any control over because there's the natural inclination of, well, nah, why does it matter? It should affect them in some way. And they should <laughs> oh, be able sure. to respond in some way. Um, so, so like my, my gaming background is, um, it's idiosyncratic, right? Um, and, and a lot of where I'm coming from is I have I have spent years and years and years figuring out how to get PCs engaged in caring about lore, and like it, so when I talk about feeling called out by this, <laughs> like uh, what like like I am engaging with this text as someone who has. Um, fought with that specific problem for a really long time. I think I've got a, a grip on it. My players will be the ones to tell you. Um, but like um, in in my broader gaming community, there's a lot of conversation about sort of can you make, can you give the players a, a list of all of the kings of this one country and get them to care about it? If so, how? And like I know I can make that work I I know that sort of in a reflexive reaction to other game runners who have had a bad experience with that and sort of my thinking is about breaking down because because I was there at the time like why their experience didn't work and sort of what I like how you build in the the hooks and the payoff to get lore into action Right, uh, and so I, my, my only point here is I agree with what you're saying. Uh, I I reflexively overlook it because the the solutions are DNA level for me. I've got to ask. There was uh, in the last month or two, Matt Koval put out a video about this exact thing. Have you seen it? I, I haven't. Okay. Um, it's an interesting video. It, it deals with this exact, that moment where you said, how do you get your players to care about the lore? That's literally a question he brings up in the video. And I think he's got a very interesting uh, and useful video to watch about it. Obviously it's his own video. You should go see it. Um, I do think that's also a very DM and group dependent. And uh, to your point earlier, it's a campaign dependent thing. Obviously, like you said, a one shot is not the place for a giant lore dump. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. No question. I I actually did watch that Matt Colville video. Now that you're bringing it up, I'm like, I, did I watch that? Yeah, I think I did. And I remember as I'm think, sitting here thinking about it, I remember agreeing with about 50, maybe 60% of what he said. Um, but what I disagreed with were some of his examples and not his overall point. So I think that it's a decent video, to watch i think maybe his resolutions and his examples of the way that he resolves it don't necessarily match everybody's gaming style because as you said things are dependent so much on the table culture for a particular group 
Uh, and so th- what he suggested might not work in a particular at, at a particular table, but the ideas that he's presenting in terms of, you know, it's important to make them care about it. If you care about it and you want them to, you have to figure out how to make them. You have to make it part of the game so that they do care. And here's some examples. And some of his examples are great and some are eh, okay. Well, and the other thing to remember is you might also have the kind of group that is hungry for that lore. And all you got to do is look to Critical Role for an example of that. That mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that is a yep. player table that uh, of now they are predisposed to be hungry for that kind of backstory for a bunch of different reasons and that's cool because then they got matt mercer who is amazing at create of literally crafting worlds so like you can watch them all get into little kid ready for a story mode when he starts to (laughs) pontificate about lore when he's got a character that's starting to explain history to them and Mm -hmm. it usually is relevant history you know so it's always got hooks it's never history just standing on its own for its own sake um, but even then, when he'll go into a big giant lore dump, they eat it up. And yeah, that is him knowing his audience. And mm-hmm. but I I would say you need to be careful because I certainly have run for player groups and where if I can't get lore out in three sentences, they don't want to listen to the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, like I think a big part of what uh, Matt Mercer is doing that is also like uh, how I would have done it definitely in LARP running, right? Is to get the PCs to treat lore as valuable, uh, literally make it the reward for what they've done. Like if they learn a secret as the reward for what they've done, they'll value it because it's how they got paid. Right. And it's, that that is a way. And even if it isn't immediately actionable, it's always actionable Intel. In some yep. way, shape, or form. But you, it is also going to be... We've gone way off topic, but it's a good topic, and I don't care. Um, oh, yeah. This is how Brandis and I roll, so don't worry about it. This is totally the show. Yeah. <laughs> like, welcome. You fit right in. I think every group... If you're going to play D&D, there is some element of lore that you are interested in, even if it's only your own lore, even if it's only your own character's backstory. So I think every D&D player, in some sense does want to know more about the at least the other characters and maybe the immediate lore of what's going on. And so some of everything we've just talked about is that nebulous, fun, psychological problem of how do I know exactly what the right amount for my players are? Um, but yes. Uh, to, yeah, like, to get back I, I would to, frame that as, yeah. like, as soon as I am not curious about uh, something in your world in your game anymore. I guess that's how you know you've lost me. And so to, to bring it back to <laughs> the chapter of the DMG <laughs> that we're talking about, I don't think it's a bad thing for the DMG to, in, in this moment to focus on, you know, crafting lore that is focused on the present that, you know, that a little bit of history might be needed to set the story in motion, but, you know, have whatever is happening be in the present moment, keep the history to a minimum, because I think that's a, that is an answer that 99% of your groups are going to appreciate and going to grab a hold of. And then 
even the ones who are super lore hounds, even the ones who would read your lore book without playing the game at all, are still going to appreciate it in the moment. And so I, I don't yep. blame the DMG for taking that approach. I don't disagree with you at all. Yeah, I, I don't either. And and I I told you why I why I was making a critique of saying that. But now let me tell you why I appreciate that they said the thing about keeping in the present, because some of the D and D worlds, <coughs> Forgotten Realms, <coughs> have been around since the mid '80s, and have been developed edition over edition, and have 35 years of lore behind them. And it needs to be okay for a player and a DM to want to create a game that does not require them to learn that 35 years of development and lore about every single piece of that campaign setting just because they want to run a three-session adventure. Yeah. Okay? And so this this paragraph makes that okay, that you don't need to know every single thing about a, a setting in order to create a fun adventure in that setting. In fact, I would go further than that and say, because the, the section after that is a little blurb about published adventures. And while mm -hmm. there is a bit in there about you can make adjustments to public adventure, uh, to published adventures, and you can do changes and everything, it's really only talking about the adventure itself. And I do kind of wish there, there was an explicit mention of... You don't have to be bound by the lore of the Forgotten Realms or of, you know, the adventure that you've bought that you're adjusting, especially since there's now been several chapters of quote unquote canon lore. You know, I and I say that as someone who runs games in the Forgotten Realms, except it is whatever version of the Forgotten Realms I've got in my head that I need at that moment. And I just destroy things and change things all the time. And mm -hmm. It's and I've got players who write Adventures League adventures, so it's not like I don't. I have players who don't know Forgotten Realms lore and history and how the world is quote unquote canon. I, I have players who know Red Larch inside and out, and it took them a second when I said no. That that city got destroyed. That it is that's a crater <laughs> on the map that doesn't exist anymore. And they kind of blinked and they went, okay, <laughs> you know, all right, right. This, this version of the world. So I do kind of wish they went. You know, because they a tiny take, bit farther. Yeah, just yeah. a sentence or two, especially since they address published adventures in this chapter about creating adventures. And they do say you can change the adventure. But yeah, coming from uh, two whole chapters about the astral plane and, you know, the world to explore and all of that. I do wish there was a little bit more, but, you know, if wishes were fishes, we'd be swimming in the sea. Well, and, and if, uh, Word count were less of a cruel mistress. Yeah. Uh, my can we keep mysteries adventure would have been a a, a a smidge longer, and by a smidge I mean qu quite a smidge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, getting rid of lore tends to be one of the things that goes, and yeah. yeah. Well, so that was a great segue because speaking of mysteries, um, I just want to – I'm going to jump ahead now because we jumped ahead, then we went back, and now let's jump ahead. Sure. You know, the the mystery section that is that is in that event-based uh, section. So here's the thing is I think it does this, – this portion of the chapter does a good job of laying out this kind of procedural – here's what you do. There's multiple steps, and you don't have to do them in order, but we're presenting them in particular order, so here they are. And then it gets to this mystery section. 
And um, it gives some really nice tips about some important elements in a mystery, like the clues mm. and, you know, when to give those and who is the victim or, or what is the victim, you know, is it a robbery or whatever. Um, and so here's my question. This is like four paragraphs on mysteries. And I feel like it's a blog post with some tips, but it doesn't really tell me how to make a mystery adventure. Well, so, uh, as we said in uh, back in chapter one, every single time it starts a sentence with "think about," it, it's just trying to <laughs> right. give you a writing. You're on your prompt. own, buddy. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's you're yeah. on your own, but at the same time, it's yeah. also trying to be a writing prompt, uh-huh. right? And like really, really crucially, and super unfortunately, this is the how to write, not how to run. Section for mysteries because right. way more than location based and event based uh, on some kind of fundamental level, uh, mysteries need to be run a little differently than your standard for skill checks in D anD D, and and that's why I brought up this particular. Because like the intrigue doesn't have any more than the mystery section has, but it's a little bit different. So the mystery is is what can't you know sort of hit, slap me in the face of here's you know I mean so, so uh, I'm I'm going to argue that like for both mysteries and intrigues you really want sort of a, a clock based dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's especially for intrigues you really want some kind of scandal or suspicion clock. Um, that that like, so that it's not sort of one and done failure. Like mysteries are of course famous for being very fragile. If failure means you don't get the clue, mm-hmm. and yeah. so what we need like this is not the chapter about running this, but the the guidance needs to exist. And as someone who just got a mystery published in a book, uh, <laughs> like. A lot of what I was writing was super laser focused on um, what happens when you fail. Yeah, I really, right. really cared about that. I haven't actually checked to see how the final text treats that. I should do that, but um, I was I was very obsessed with like when you fail an ability check, what happens. Right, but that's exactly why I'm I'm calling this section out because you know they they sort of they sort of tucked the mysteries and the intrigue into the event based section, and yep. I am saying it should have been its own section with a little bit more meat on it for oh, that very reason. Yeah, like, uh, we're gonna like, like there there has not yet been a section in this book where we haven't said, "Man, I wish this were like twice as long." <laughs> and that's um, and that's. Um, I think you're both correct that this is a very um, simple overview of both intrigue and mysteries, but especially mysteries. But yep. it does boil down once again to um, you, as we've literally just seen, you could put out an entire book about running D and D mysteries. And so what <laughs> are, what are some of the beginner steps and what what are some of the beginner things to think about if if the thing you are excited about running is a who done it at least this does address that and i do appreciate that it's got some of that 
all right, maybe this is the kind of advice you would find on a quick blog post Google search, but it's got it in there. It's got the basics. Um, I, I think for any of the adventure types, you could write an entire chapter, you know, to go back to say the event or the, the location based, it isn't just a page and a half of like, Oh, make a room in a dungeon. Now make another room in a dungeon. Now make another room in a dungeon. Like there's a lot going on. <laughs> uh, Traps is its own book. And you know, there's all kinds of, of things that are really important that, could be expanded upon, but if this chapter really is, here's a lot of the basics that you need, um, it gets at least most of the important points in there. Um, to be honest, the thing that I would have liked, and I am not a mystery person, I'm not, I don't often run mysteries, I am not necessarily a whodunit person. The thing I would have liked in there a little bit more is specifically running mysteries in D&D, because &D. I think everybody kind of understands the basics of the, the Sherlockian Holmes kind of mystery or a crime scene, or they've seen, you know, one of the three billion cop dramas that are out there. <laughs> but when you've got a cleric that can cast Speak with Dead and you're doing a murder mystery, that's something you have to think about that you don't have to think about in any other form of d and of, yeah, of It mystery. is rough. <laughs> it is rough. And so I I wish that was the thing that I wish was, you know, one extra paragraph in here of think about the types of characters that you have and um, think about ways to both challenge and reward them because this isn't this shouldn't just be a regular murder mystery for example that the rogue can go ahead and go bugats on and then everybody else is standing around doing nothing you're going to have a cleric who can cast speak with dead you're going to have you're also going to have a barbarian who without something to fight or without a couple of other things going on is going to be bored so you know, I know I am right now saying this to someone once again who has a published adventure in Candlekeep Mysteries, but like I do wish that little bit more was in there was specifically addressing some of the D D specific concerns, even if it's just pointing yeah. it out, even if it's not no giving doubt. any kind of context, just reminding DMs that hey, you're not just making a murder mystery for Sherlock Holmes, you're making a murder mystery for your Beastmaster Ranger. Yep, and like I, it's <laughs> it, it, it's challenge. I mean, yeah. Um, and you know, this chapter doesn't really say any of that anywhere. It it doesn't say, and I read it just recently, so maybe I'm maybe I'm misrecalling it. But as far as I can remember, it doesn't really say anywhere that you should really look at the players that are going to play this adventure. If you're running for a home game, right? Like, a, like it does assume that you're not running, you're not writing a published adventure. It's it says in there for writing an adventure for yourself to run for your players, but then it really doesn't say. Okay, now think about the PCs that they have, and if they all make barbarians, you're not running a murder mystery. Well, <laughs> well yeah, there's, there's no mystery as to who did the murder. Right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> they they are all guilty. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Or they're all innocent, but the way they're going to solve it is they're 
going to kill everybody or they're going to knock yes. everybody out. I mean, it doesn't have to be lethal. I That is a the interesting thing about that criticism is that was going to be the one that I was going to bring up for later in the chapter when it gets into creating mm. encounters because. Well, right. and, like, yeah. So, so like how do I write a mystery when all these divinations exist is one of those topics that like I, I've seen people sort of talk themselves in circle about in circles about for literal decades. And I will be damned if, 95% of the answers I hear don't just boil down to uh, write it so the divination doesn't do them any good and, you know, be a better DM. Oh. Just just be a better, just be better. And I just want to stab people for both of those answers. <laughs> it makes me so mad. You know what? As a player, it's okay if I do something that doesn't work, you know, but sure. if... Sure. If I'm spending a resource to find out it doesn't work, if I at least get something out of that, then I don't feel like I I'm certainly agree. It. And that is a hard thing. And so when you tell people just, oh, you know, the the speak with dead example is, oh, well, just make it so that the the victim doesn't know who killed them. They just all of a sudden died. It's like, right. well, but now you're you're asking you know, you, you've got a, a character, Bar, Bar de Cleric, who's now going to spend the third level slot and do what should be a smart thing, and you're giving them nothing. You know, yep. can you walk that line? And if it if it's the third mystery you're running as a DM for your party, and that's the third time it's happened to that person who always plays the cleric, like... Yep. That's going to get old even if they do get it, even if they do get some information, although the information is not who killed the person, but... Yeah, that is going to start to get old when their stuff doesn't work. It sure is. And you can definitely have it be useful information and have it be a clue gathering moment, mystery or no, without revealing the entire thing. And and so it can feel for the player. You can make it a win for the player without it being a press button and I've won the entire adventure. And for divination, for any of that. And that's why, you know, once again, I kind of wanted that extra moment in because I don't think the DMG in this section is the appropriate place to go into all of the, the minutia of crafting mysteries. Cause you're right. There's a lot going on, but even just pointing it out, which is a lot of this chapter is just pointing things out and pointing out, you know, moments and th things to think about and places to go for more information, having that moment and saying, Hey, while you're thinking about uh, a mystery, um, think about your party comp, think about what they're good at, think about what they're not good at, think about what their level is, so that you can not just think about how to challenge them, not not how to block them, but how to reward them in a variety of ways. Because if you're thinking about blocking them as the DM, that's just how do I shut my players down? The, the more important yep. thing is how do I reward them for everything that they want to do without it being an instant win button, which is hard. And I'll tell you, as a DM, I'm I generally root for the for the PCs and for the players. Yeah. And when they're when they're and it doesn't happen to me very often because I've been doing this for, as Branda says, for a minute. Um, but every once in a while, I'll have a session where the players somehow don't 
they misread some some clues or some information or or they they had it in their notes from two sessions ago and they had it slightly off and it sends them off on a tangent and nothing they try for that entire session is on the right track and I can't get them back on the right track. And so it's almost like they've got this long hallway of doors and every time they open a door, it's not what they were looking for. Okay. I'm going to the next door. I'm opening this door. It's not what they're looking for. And it is not fun for the DM either. Right. It makes for a really not fun session. So if you can help it, try not to create a situation where you know, and as I said, sometimes it just happens. It's not that the DM created or didn't create it, but sometimes it happens. But that should be a piece of advice when you're writing something that could be seen as a mystery. You don't want to give them so many red herrings that every door they open is the door with the donkey behind it instead of the door with the gold box, right? Mm-hmm. Like it can't it can't always seem like they're failing everything because that gets really old. Yeah, it goes back to that idea of of the improv idea of yes and. You can't always yes and because you don't want to mm-hmm. say yes to your players all the time because that actually gets boring. But the idea right. of being able to say no but, being able to come yep. up with, all right, your idea didn't work. No, this is not going to work. But you still get this out of this or you get this little bit of information or while, yeah, you you failed at doing this thing, but when that happened, it revealed this, um, you know, succeeding by failure kind of thing. And and so you can, I, I literally just had this happen in a game of mine and where my players tried to do something that wasn't necessarily a bad idea, but they failed spectacularly at it. You know, some of it was roles. Some of it was just poor planning, but the way that they did it allowed me to know but them and say, well, this mm-hmm. didn't work the way you planned, but it still got you the result that you wanted, just not in the way you wanted it. And so they could still feel the that sense of, well, we failed upwards. <laughs> and I think <laughs> mysteries, right. mysteries are that to a T because the last thing you want is to be stuck and if you if you know or if they fail too many times and you don't have that butt ready and that's a hard hard thing and it it's not something that can be easily described in a couple of paragraphs but i don't know if there could have been more room in here really besides a maybe another paragraph or two where this could have taken an entire book sure and, and i think that um my realistic answer is to wait for a book about running mysteries to <laughs> expand on the DM, the DM guidance for mysteries. In this case, 17 implementations, <laughs> not not uh, one single advice article, right? Is, is, right but, but also in this case, it was a six-year wait. Uh, well, yes – a, a slow release cycle where you can afford to buy everything <laughs> does mean some long, sure. long waits. But what I'm saying is like that advice doesn't work for me four years ago, right? Uh, the time traveler in me is very disappointing <laughs> me right now, Sam. <laughs> okay, John Teeter. <laughs> I, I will also say this. Because this is a chapter that is obviously – the beginner DM, the, the the first time, second time, third DM, uh, who needs the basics, who needs the overview. I think this entire chapter, not just mysteries specifically, I think mysteries highlight this 
but this entire chapter is here's the basics to get you started, but you're probably going to have to go other places as well. And I think that's okay, both because this needs to be a chapter that's digestible and not massive, Mm -hmm. but also because we're talking about a very specific genre right now. We're talking about mysteries and objectively that's awesome. Lauren does not want to run a mystery. And so Lauren, the DM is skipping (laughs) over that. Mm -hmm. And if, if the mystery section of the DMG is gigantic, now Lauren is skipping over the entire section about mysteries. So having it be this digestible little thing. um, All right. Maybe this isn't the adventure that I'm running because I'm not interested in running a mystery, but I'll read it over to get some ideas because it's three paragraphs. So I think that's something to keep in mind here that this isn't supposed to be the answer to all DMs questions as much as it is the dungeon master's guide. Sure. Let me let me do you one better, though, also, and tell you that some of the advice in the mystery section actually applies to every other adventure you could ever run to. Oh, the clues and thing, they don't, especially. Right. And they, they also don't really say that. They sort of put it in its own little box. Yeah. And, you know, so, so here's DM Sam saying, this is at once not specific enough, and then at the same time, way too specific. <laughs> Well, they're never gonna they're never gonna write text that actually pleases us. Come on, I know. Well, that's why we have this show because of that, right? Yep. If it was perfect, we wouldn't need the show. Please, everyone, all the time. Come on, Wizards, of the I, do everything all the time oh, for everybody perfectly. I, my, my eyes are just skeeting blood right now in old MMO de- de- developer. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and just to be clear. Uh, you know, these critiques are fully observant of the fact that uh, everybody who is involved in this book loves D&D and wants to make the best book possible. Yes. And, uh, and I fully agree with that. And I think that they did the best job with the space they have, with the job they had to do. I mean, the book is awesome. Okay. I'm not, I, I, we're critiquing it because I'm a total nerd and this is what I do. So there you go. Yep. Well, and uh, like, I, I hope that some of our listeners will take from this, hey, look, if you've got stuff to say, like shoot your shot, write that text, sell the DMs Guild or drive through or just your blog. And mm-hmm. maybe you can make a bundle off of having like the best framing of that advice that the DMG didn't have space to, to do. Because you know what doesn't have page cut limits? A PDF, my guy. That's right. I know. It's great. So, it's great. So moving on, the next section about framing events is a great table. Not a lot framing, of text there, but the framing events table is really fun. Framing events is amazing, and we're about to get into even more amazing stuff that I just adore. So so yeah, like talk about like placing everything in time and placing everything in a living world. The framing events is beautiful. No, I agree. Uh, I think most of the tables here, but especially that um, as a as both a here's an event that you can that can be the centerpiece of your adventure or here is just an event that's happening that is literally a framing event, you know, for mm -hmm. everything else that's going on. Maybe the circus has zero to do with your adventure. It just happens to be in town. But now that's a touch point that you can go back to if you need, especially since we're coming up on the complications, which includes things like side quests and other things where you can use that framing event. So, yeah. 
Right. And so the other thing about framing events that I wish they would have said, and they could have added one paragraph to the framing events, little paragraph at the top, is the other thing to think about with framing events is it tells the players what the people in the area where they're at care about. So oh, yeah. if they're if they're at a fertility festival and they're in a farming town, it seems like that's obvious why they would be having a fertility festival or a harvest festival or because uh, those are fun, <laughs> fun, right? But but you know what I'm saying, right? It tells you what you know they're what they're what's important to them. But what if you're in a big city? If you're in the free city of Greyhawk and they're having a fertility festival, what does that tell you about the city? What are the city population doing? Where is the festival? Is the parade in town? Is it outdoors near the farms? Like what? Like those are the types of things that this table in my DM brain leads me to is asking about those questions. Yep. And that is a great, that's, that's why it's a great table. So. Yep. Um, I mean, even more than the other ones, I would not roll randomly on this oh, table for sure. yeah. ever, but uh, just going down here and like uh, trying to get your brain to spark off of something you wouldn't normally do is a, a superpower move to me. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely yeah and that's why these tables even though as i said at the beginning i don't ever roll on any of these tables but i read every single one yep, yep. well and I, I i have to love kind of framing events some of these have we'll call them implications for the, how the rest of this adventure is going to go mm-hmm. full moon right. uh, oh no yeah <laughs> i guess i guess we're gonna have a bad time yeah violent uprising um okay yeah <laughs> um just i think of all those years of larping where like the phase of the moon on friday night of the event <laughs> is a major topic that everyone is concerned about mm-hmm. because i've never met a game that would not be happy to eat you with a werewolf um, right. Given to have an opportunity. <laughs> but also, I would love to set something on the, you know, here's the lunar festival during the full moon, and it's all just a red herring. It's all 100%. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Super good. Yeah, you know, Super good. You get to the end of it, and everyone's like, what are you talking about, werewolves? Of course not. Well, here's uh, one that's interesting. Migration of monsters. Like, they're not coming to destroy the town, but that's what everybody thinks. There's this big mob of monsters coming. Yeah, yeah. So, so Sam, I'm going to suggest they could be moderns. They could be marching early. There you go. Yeah. Or it just says migration. It doesn't necessarily say that it has to be a destructive migration. This could be the annual basilisk migration that's going to go by the town. And as long as you're not in the way, they're not going to come after you, you know. And so everybody's going to stand up on some, you know, on, on the top of their roofs far enough away that they can't look any of the basilisks in the eye. But now you get to see all this goes through. And so maybe this is also when, you know, you're looking to commission a sculpture and you're going to make it out of some cheap plastic and stick it out there and then it's going to turn to stone. I don't know. I know that's not how vessels <laughs> work, but like that kind of thing. That's awesome. You know, and where... And so then when, the, when the migration is over, there is literally a, a, a road that has various statues on either side flanking the road from all of the basilisks turning everything into stone. Where'd you get that awesome squirrel statue you have? Oh, 
oh, you know, the every five year basilisk migration that comes by, it's great. I collect squirrel statues and it's fabulous. You know, you know, maybe there are people. Oh my who, God, the market in squirrel tchotchke statues is the right? best. Maybe your version of basilisks also turn the petrified the trees. And so this is a very well known petrified forest because of this. And the, the trees are harvested every time this happens. And so this is a welcome thing. It could be dangerous if you do it wrong. And maybe maybe the migration's late this year, so they can't do the harvest, and that's what the whole problem is. Yeah, what's wh- we have to go save the basilisks. Why haven't they migrated yet? What's got well now? There's another. See, this is this is why this table is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing that adventure now. That that's done. All right. <laughs> and next, we get to the complications and moral quandaries. Now a complication. Yeah. Now a complication. <laughs> Now I also I do like this. I like this so that you can think about a a twist in the middle of the adventure because that can be hard to come up with. You know, like you've been now walked through. Here's the beginning, middle, and end of your adventure. Here is what your villain wants. Here is kind of the the basic outline, and there's nothing wrong with that. But to be able to add that twist into the middle is difficult to do. I think some of these quandaries are a bit more difficult to do than others. And I definitely think one or two of them require um, a lot more very close discussion with your players. Um, You know, the, the difference between the, how your players are interacting with an NPC that may like or dislike, or, you know, a faction that may like or dislike them. And, um, some, uh, it's the honor quandary. That's the one which, you know, I, I'm always a little wary about honor when, when it starts being talked about in a, in a, in a D game, but like specifically that one went into like paladins and clerics doing something against their faith. And there's definitely some issues there depending on how your game deals with things. And that's a very, that can be a very, consequential thing for some of your players so so i i I was reading that and suddenly struck by the fact that um a paladin has sworn the oath of virtue excuse me a moment please what's the oath of virtue yeah there's that too that's a little weird (laughs) that's that whole honor it's got to be a rename of devotion that just didn't get caught at some point. Yeah, the, the, that section is just the fact that it's um it really is dealing with it, it the examples that it gives and I know this doesn't need to be just these two examples, but it, it the examples that it gives really are two of the devout characters. It's talking about their oaths or their tenets or their faith and they can have depending on the way that you play your game, real consequences for, you know, not just how your player character feels, but there are certainly games in where if you disobey the orders of your faith, you lose your powers. You know, that's kind of the harshest bit. So I would definitely be cautious. And that section does have, if you present this quandary, be sure to provide an opportunity for a character to atone for violating his or her oath. I think you need a little more than that. I think you better have the buy-in from your player on this. And also I don't yeah, for think sure. this is, the, the other issue I have with it calling out paladins and clerics is it can very easily come across that this section is only about devout things. You know, the, the idea of like, Oh, you know, I've, 
I have done something against my own personal code that has made me upset with myself is something that anyone can can relate to. But that's that's the one. I think the rest of these are really good. That's the one that I read over and I went, ah, this is problematic in a bunch of different yeah, ways. Yeah, I mean, it, it puts me in mind of sort of the, the manor punk uh, sort of aesthetic and whole deal of maybe your Downton Abbey or your Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell kind of kind of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are hard to run well. Yeah. They're hard to set up just so, so that a character can sort of go through the gauntlet, but still be a protagonist at the end and not, kind of so destroyed as a character that I'll uh, I guess they have to retire because like we don't know how to fix this person so they're still appealing to anyone including the person playing them all the other countries that are here have consequences that don't necessarily impact a PC so deeply that it can have lasting consequences, you know, besides some, some really nice role-playing, depending on how you do this. Um, I mean, all of them can kind of go a little wonky, but it's a little more difficult for like, Hey, all of a sudden this NPC that was your friend is not your friend anymore. It's like, Oh, well that really sucks. I like this NPC, but Oh, well, you know, but Oh, I've gone against the tenants of my God. And now I don't have my power anymore. That's a little different. And that's, that's that's difficult. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there are other examples they could use that did not invoke such a strong paladin cleric, you know, losing well, powers kind of uh, theme. Uh, oh, sure. I think that there are plenty of warlocks who would uh, regard their relationship with their patron as at least involving an ethic. And like, it, so what, what I hear is that they actually want to talk about uh, – like. Because they chose paladin and cleric, they actually want to talk about not honor, but your piety, r- your, your relationship with you know, uh, immortal beings that still influences your life. But that's not. But that's what I mean, though, is that the honor quandary doesn't have to be that. And so they no, they agree. could use they could use examples that have nothing to do with a person's faith or power source, so to sure. speak. Right? They, They've just gone for stereotypically honorable characters, right? And they who, could just talk about reputation, right? Like maybe the party when they realize the solution to a particular issue that they have, the the most obvious, easy to enact resolution is going to make them lose respect in the eyes of their patron that hired them or in the eyes of the town that they grew up in or whatever. Like that's a full on honor quandary and has nothing to do with mechanically losing powers as a warlock, cleric, paladin, or anybody else. Like there, it feels like they could have written other things in here without specifically calling those two classes. out. I think you can even take away all of the other quandaries that are in here are issues with other groups or individuals in the game. Whereas this is a quandary that should be a personal one that might not necessarily even um, be something in that the, um, it might not, I don't want to use honor. I'll, I'll use a cleric example that has nothing really to do with their God, but like it, it might not have something that is an action item. It might just be something that your character's wrestling with. I, I have a cleric in my game 
that I am playing that is that does not like undead that has um, uh, that really clearly does not like undead for very specific reasons and on a regular basis now she not only is dealing with the fact that she's got a necromancer in one of her groups but one of her other party members is a damp fear now there's reasons why they're getting along and everything but like that's a she's got this personal um this is a personal thing that she does not like undead for very specific reasons and she is not adhering to that personal code for other reasons that are good reasons that are helping her get along with everybody that isn't necessarily anything to do with any plot that's not affecting her or even the other character in anything except a role-playing way it's like all right we're going to work together to get this problem solved and i am going to work with the necromancer because i have to because the necromancer is still a good person even if they've got you know a couple of undead with them um Like those kind of issues that are more the role playing issues, I I think are the way to go. And it doesn't have to be piety related. You can have the ranger who wants to uh, make sure that you're protecting this section of the forest, but understands that in the course of action of saving the town, the forest got set on fire and maybe they were able to save some of the forest and, you know, but it's still sad. And it's, it's this, they feel personally like, all right, we may have won the day. We may have succeeded in, in our overall mission, but there was this collateral damage. And I feel personally upset by that. And I'm personally now going to go and, help revitalize the forest, you know, to make up for that. So I think there are a bunch of different ways that you can go about it, but it's hard. It's hard. You gotta be, that's a session zero type of chat you need to have with people. Well, and it's also, it's also one of those parts where they need to actually say, think about the PCs you have in your party. Yeah. That, that sentence would have helped a lot. Yeah. Well, that's a mic drop moment. It's just like, poof. Okay, go. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I'll give them, I'll I'll give them credit. They didn't go the cliche, especially, especially in, in the history of D and D when honor comes up, everyone wants to talk about monks and they want to do a, uh, they want to go down that road. And so the fact that they stayed away from those kind of stereotypes, I think, Helped mm-hmm. a little bit, but yeah, this. Uh, that's later in the book. We we'll get we we'll get to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, not yeah. this chapter, but later. Yeah, let's let's move on. I yeah. think we've beat this horse. But <laughs> yes, it's. I I like the rest of it. I like all of the rest of it. Um, I I think a lot of the rest of it is really really good, and um, it's they're all still difficult to do. Role playing that kind of interpersonal conflict is always difficult and the first couple times you do it it's it's going to be hard um and it i don't think it gets easier it just you have a little more practice in it because right yeah i agree with that but i think it's a good list yeah that moves us to um i mean i think twists and side quests are great i'm not sure we need to talk about those i think we've already mentioned how great those are they're just more great tables yeah yeah it's Um, it's that simple and that leads us to creating encounters So, so the, the sample objectives, those are all great. 
I have no problem with the sample objectives. It's uh, what, what I assume, Lauren, you're you're reacting to is uh, page eighty-two and thereafter. Mm-hmm. The the CR and all the math. Yeah, where, where, where CR and math comes yeah. in, and you know, there's been a lot of commentary uh, about this on Twitter just in the past couple of days. Uh, we're recording on the the twenty sixth of March, um, and so a lot of this conversation is really fresh. Uh, I have not been on Twitter because I've been slammed with work. So what did I miss? So um, basically, uh, <laughs> part of me wants to say it, nothing. You've missed nothing. Please continue so, to live so, in your bliss. It's fine. That's well, fine. yeah. In, in what I hope is a, a charitable and accurate paraphrase, uh, Alyssa Vischer has uh, basically said, "Hey, so does anyone like actually get and use CR?" <laughs> oh no! That, okay, can and, of, can of worms. Got, I will open the I, right, and she got hundreds of responses. Yeah, sure. and you know, the responses are all over the place. Um, mine is, I, I don't, I, I use them to sort of help me know what I'm telegraphing to the players properly, not to help me know what I should uh, put in front of the players, like. If I decide the encounter needs to be, you know, deadly plus plus plus, uh, that's their problem, not mine. But I want to make sure that my description is telegraphing it so that they know that, you know, beating feet, not the worst decision we can make. We can leave. Uh, we should probably go. I'll give I'll give my answer to it's an excellent thread and she's awesome. Definitely go follow her. Um my answer is it is a starting point for ideas. And that's it. It is, it is, I go to Cobalt Fight Club and I start clicking on uh, a couple of buttons to give me some ideas for a general, you know, all right, what's the, what's the, if I've got this party at this level, what does the CR say would be a encounter that is hard or deadly? And then that's the starting point to then adjust because my main problem, and if I am wrong, definitely correct me, but amongst some of the excellent advice that's in here, at no point does it say that you need to take into account what your characters are and what they can do. Well, so so that is part of it, though the serious problem with the table... um, is actually a more specific thing than that. So, like, do you have a balanced party? That that's good to know. That, that's obviously going to affect things. I'm not. I'm not trying to pull your leg about that. But nothing on this table, in any way, tries to factor in the magic items that your party has or doesn't. There's a. There is a little bit. There's a. There's a section. There's a. Um. A quoted bit about challenge rating and where it does talk about how um it, it basically only talks about hey if the challenge rating is too high um you can kill your party without them even knowing because of some issues but it's it's a very uh it only gives like one or two examples and it it gives it in the most um extreme way of like, all right, if you don't, it's the Rakshasa uh, example and the ogre who can right. kill a first level wizard. Well, I mean, anything can kill a first level yeah. wizard at the single blow. It's a first level wizard. Come right. on. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. It, it gives that sidebar. But but the thing is, uh, and and I, th- 
I think what Brandis is pointing out is something that is actually very, very significant. And that is more than just looking at what party you have is that this CR table doesn't, it it assumes no magic, like no magic items at all. And no one plays that way. And the game knows no one plays that way, Mm -hmm. but they they very deliberately built the game so that magic items aren't part of a gear. Right. But here's, and that's fine, but here's my problem. It doesn't say that in here. I, I agree it with you. It doesn't no, say I, it. I feel yeah. you. It's one effing sentence. No, th- like, that I think is a, a real oversight in just them explaining the works of God to man here, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> like, it, 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 is, it is a real problem in this table, and I'm willing to be very, very charitable on a lot of things with this book. This is one that I think is just no you you kind of misled dms like in a in a real serious way and there like i'm not saying that there needs to be a clear mathematical formula for okay you've got this many items at this at this rarity so uh you need to you know apply this kicker to expected party level and and so on no that, that, that that's too much but there could be a step in here that says now step back and analyze this looking at the magical items that your party has available to them sure yes because that could turn a deadly encounter into a moderate one sure or just what you know the what the party has that they're disposal as far as their makeup as far as their usual builds the the obvious example here is if i've got a wizard who specializes in they're an evocation wizard that specializes in fire spells and they've got empowered spells and they can sculpt around their friends and they're all fireball fireball all the time it doesn't matter how many monsters i put in front of him if they are vulnerable to fire that CR rating is not going to be accurate or what it also, (laughs) not just that, but what it also means is if I do that, the first off, if I do it the wrong way, either the wizard is always going to feel like they're overpowered and everybody else is going to be like, eh, what, what, what am I doing in a combat? You know, it's like, it's fun to do that for one combat. (laughs) Let the wizard do their awesome fireball and feel super powerful. But if it happens every combat, it's boring. But if you switch that and you're constantly uh, blocking the wizard, if you're making sure everybody can counterspell them, or if you just throw fire elementals oh. at them, they're going to feel picked on. And that has zero to do with challenge rating and 100% to do with taking a moment to think about your players and think about the monsters that you're throwing at them. And that sidebar that it gives is not enough. Rant over. <laughs> I I agree with what you're saying, right? (laughs) Please Um, don't stop ranting. (laughs) Can I talk a few things about what I think is good in here now that I've ranted? Please do. I like that the creating encounters section starts with a list of encounters that are not combat encounters. Sample, the sample objectives that it gives. The first one is actually to make peace. And the fact that the there is a list of encounters that can be considered encounters that are not battle encounters, that are not uh, a fight, I love. It's protect, retrieve, run, sneak, make peace, stop a ritual, you know, and then they take out a single target. But like 
the idea that an encounter doesn't just have to be, you know, the Final Fantasy fight music starts up and the monsters are over there and you're over here and now go kill. The fact that there can be yep. these different types. What I also like is how um, before it gets into the weeds about how you craft combat encounters, it makes an effort to try to convince you that not only should these encounters be fun and they shouldn't be a burden, but they should have an objective beyond just being uh, like an obstacle is okay every once in a while, but it shouldn't just be story, 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 fight for the sake of we haven't fought in a while. That to think about why this encounter is happening, to place, um, if it is going to be a combat encounter, to think about why these creatures and monsters specifically in this fight, is it just all right, it's time for a battle and so a dragon shows up? Or is there a reason? Is is uh, completing this battle going to help progress the story? The fact that it does talk about that, I appreciate. Because I, instead of just driving right into, okay, here's a bunch of uh, tables to roll on and some objectives, the fact that it takes the moment to say, this doesn't just have to be, oh, we're bored, so here's a bunch of owl bears. I do like that a lot. For sure. For sure. And I don't expect the DMG to have had more about this because uh, like it was a new combat no one system writes enough time. about this. Um, right. but every um, like every piece of good guidance that has come out about uh, you know, best practices DMing, game running for decades now has said Hey, you know, have a fight goal other than everybody on one side or the other side is dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we have not gotten nearly enough better at sort of gracefully uh, making sure each encounter in a narrative functions on those terms. Yeah. Well, and w- let's be honest, we're also not even good at telling the DM it's okay to make the monsters run away if they want yep. to. Like most most uh, beast intelligence creatures, right? Animal intelligence specifically for sure, but also even magical beasts and whatnot, they're not just going to fight to the death. They're going to say, holy crap, I'm losing. I'm getting the hell out of here. Yep. And and we don't we make morale systems right we make those optional and we don't we don't do a good enough job of telling the DM hey it's okay if that manticore just took thirty points of damage from one hit from the barbarian and it decides this I'm out of here yeah. and I mean that is also something that updates will hopefully fix but um, I still give experience to my players at the end of every single game and what I've discovered is that. When, like, I know a lot of people switch to milestones because of these problems that you're talking about so that players don't feel mm-hmm. like, oh, I have to go kill the owl bear because that's the only way that I can get experience. I continue to give experience at the end of every single game. And what I do is I call out, I don't say you've killed the owl bear and you get so much experience, but if they make the owlbear run away, if they engage with the owlbear and then disengage with the owlbear, you know, whatever they do, the successful encounter in that case was survival. If they made the owlbear run away, they still get the experience for the owlbear. As soon as my players realize that, as soon as they realize that um, death is, that experience is not contingent on death, 
it gave them more license in the game to be the kind of characters that don't want to kill everything they come across. They'll defend themselves, they'll kill when necessary, but they no longer feel like, oh, we're in this encounter. If I don't kill them, I'm not going to get experience and then I'm not going to level up, which is an older school version of thought. But if they know that I will reward them for any of those outcomes and you know, it's, but, but that is not something that's in here. And that's something you have to make clear to the players that like, if you can make these creatures run away, or if you can uh, disable them non-lethally, if you can, you know, knock them out, or if you can sneak around them, you'll still get rewarded, not just in the role play of your game, but in the, the hardcore math of your character leveling up. Yeah. You'll have less murder hobos. So, uh, so I'm going to call you out on one thing there. Tell me. You said it's an old it's an old school idea to have to fight to the death, and that's absolutely not true. It's actually old school to try to avoid the creature altogether, but still get in and steal its loot <laughs> because you used to get gold for you used to get XP for gold. That's true. You're right about that. So so you you wouldn't ha- now if you got in the fight, it was very common for the DM to punish the players by making those ogres fight to the death, even though you're winning because they know they could still kill you with one hit. Right. That's, but that's in my opinion, bad DM behavior, not right. Like not, that's not what the game said to do. What the game said to do was you get experience. If you do kill the creature or defeat it in any way, you can also get experience. If it runs away, you also get experience from its gold, which is not a thing in fifth edition necessarily, but but I agree with you. I mean, that's exactly what I do. I give XP if they defeat it, whether they parlayed with it and convinced it to not attack them, whether they actually were in combat and made it run away or they ran away. Look, if they ran away and survived, but it was the right thing to do for them to run away, they still get the XP. They learned from it. That's what XP is. And this is this is a little bit of a sidebar on all this, but one of the other reasons I like giving XP at the end of every single game that I run, every single session, even if there was no combat, is because I give experience f- for um, role-playing and for other things. Uh, you, you made me laugh. Here's an extra thousand experience, stuff like that. So right. if, and it lets me then call out each of my players for, hey, you did this thing that was cool or exciting or interesting or funny or whatever, and so I'm going to give you experience for that. And so it does doesn't pigeonhole them into we have to go out and go find the dragon to kill but that's a that is a sidebar <laughs> <laughs> well so so like i definitely have plenty of feelings about experience and how it's rewarded how it's awarded and we've talked about it more than a few times in previous episodes um i i, I want to say a couple of things for sure uh, no edition of D has ever said that uh, all XP needs to come from monster kills. Uh, That is a a common myth, but it's a myth. Every uh, edition of D&D has had something other than monster kills as a a source of XP, even if there wasn't a ton of guidance. Second, uh, even though the XP in my campaign is completely divorced from monster kills, I still hand out XP because... um, I'm running a situation where there are a lot of players and a lot of characters, and so there's uneven levels within a party. And I, I use the XP to like make sure they all advance, but I don't want to go to milestone leveling because 
players haven't but players and characters haven't been through the same number of sessions and so it doesn't feel right uh I, I had the option when i started the campaign to just have everyone always be the same level but that isn't what we wanted to do it's much more west marcher style for us and that really requires xp yeah i will uh point out something else that i like when it gets into the random encounter table and especially the the example that it gives once again not everything on the random encounter table is a fight and not everything has to be fought and some of them are clearly just interesting moments and yep and and they've been really good about that in the adventures that i recall seeing whenever they have a table of random encounters like they aren't here's the thing you have to fight is here's the thing you see Mm -hmm. maybe it's something that you have the option to stab but maybe it isn't and even if you do have the option to stab it maybe you have some other options yeah and the fact that um even the ones that are in encounter and it just lists a creature because the creatures themselves are not all mindless beasts or you know they're not all described as being hostile. The giant owl you come yep. across does not have to be a fight. It can be. Oh, you just see a giant owl, and giant owl is really cool. Uh, you look in D and D. If you're fighting blink dogs, you're a bad person, and I don't want to game with you. <laughs> I'm going to call it what it is. You... Fighting blink dogs makes you a bad person. You should only be grappling them to pet them. That's right. That is accurate. Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I really love the fact that they have two two full pages, two and a half actually, two and a third, whatever, on random encounters because I think random encounters get a huge bad rap in in sort of modern D&D. Um, I think in fourth edition they were very hard to do because the game was so map and and terrain heavy and set up you know fantastic encounters that are that are so time consuming. So you didn't want to just sort of quote waste some some awesome terrain map or something on a random encounter. But my response to that was always random encounters just means you have a random probability of running into that thing. Doesn't mean that its purpose is random, right? Like for me, the 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 random encounter should always provide you with some information. It either gives the PC some insight into what's in the location where they are or something that's happening around them that may not have anything to do with them, they think, but then it gives them a clue to something they've been looking for. You know what I mean? Like there's a reason for the random encounter and it's not a, it's not, um, it's not an encounter that has to happen because if they don't get that clue or that extra piece of information, Oh, well, it doesn't stop anything. But if they do happen to encounter that random probability that says they should run into this owlbear now, like, then they might learn something about their environment or the situation that's going on or how whatever situation is going on with the town nearby is affecting the creatures in the forest. I mean, there's all sorts of ways to work in something important into a random encounter that is not maybe necessary for the party to know because, you know, there's the chance they won't run into that random encounter, but is good to know. And, uh, uh, you know, this is one of those, this is very similar to the lore dump, right? Like maybe they just learned something about the world that's kind of cool and fantastical and interesting. And it, it, it just offers a little fascinating glimpse into what's happening and not an actionable, you know, oh, this owlbear has a note stuck in its fur, and this note's from the main villain to be like, it doesn't have to be that, right? But it can be 
something that's interesting. It, so I was quite pleased to see when I first got the DMG that they have a whole like support of random encounters. I totally agree with what you're saying. And, and in fact, the it, there's an actual sentence that I really like in the random encounter bit that's random encounter tables present obstacles and events that advance the plot, foreshadow important elements or themes in the adventure, and provide fun distractions. And so while I agree mm-hmm. that the fun distraction one, the one that really is you're throwing at them that doesn't advance the plot. It doesn't foreshadow important events or themes in the adventure. It doesn't do anything except provide a fun distraction. You need to be judicious about those because those really are at their core, the most random of random encounters. I do think they're good for every once in a while for a couple of reasons. One, everyone's got, or everyone has had the player in their party who really is there to kick down the doors and get into a fight. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. And the the players mm-hmm. who are good recognize that, hey, the role play and the exploration and the other parts of this, those might not be my jam, but that's the jam of the other players. And so I'm going to go along. But when it gets into a fight, that's when I really get excited. Um, I've got a, a player like that right now in one of my games. And so the the fun distraction random encounter is the way to reward them for uh, participating in and going along with the other players as they do their heavy role play. And then every once in a while, I throw an owlbear at them. Um, also, <laughs> every once in a while, it is just fun to get into a knockdown drag out fight that has no consequences other than the possibility that we're going to get hurt because uh, if you've just gotten through a whole big moral quandary, if you've just been, you know, through the RP ringer, if you've just leveled up and have some new powers, it is fun to just throw a bunch of zombies at somebody. And and there's there's mm-hmm. no moral quandary about should we or shouldn't we. There's not any other things going on. You can just kind of give in to the mechanics of D&D and enjoy that. And so while I agree with you 95% of the time, it is good every once in a while to just be like, I found this cool monster and y'all just leveled up. Let's have some fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm a huge proponent also of just throwing a really easy encounter at the party sometimes. Just let them let them mow down, like you said, some zombies, right? Look, by the time the party's like sixth, seventh level, 10 zombies, really, come on. That is not, but you know what? They get to run in and mow down those zombie mm-hmm. right? And that is fun sometimes. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that um, this is something that, just touch on uh, Matt Mercer's style again, something he does is you know be going along an adventure and then a weird horrible one-off monster appears and they fight yeah. it like it's the monster is just an obstacle that the you know made for an interesting a, a visually interesting exciting fight that's not bad it's fine actually yeah. because he is using it to deliver characterization about the place and about the sense of danger and like you can certainly have a sense of danger without, uh, you know, violence, but it's a lot harder. Yeah. Well, and you know, in the in the older, you know, in first edition, you know, if you look in the monster manual for first edition, you'll see, you know, number encountered, right? And you'll see some of those creatures are unique, so you only ever would encounter one of them by itself. Yep. And there's really no time that you would really encounter that creature unless the dm says hey that is a really funky 
up weird creature with a bear claw in one hand and a lobster claw in the other and the face of a donkey. And that is so freaky. I'm going to throw it at them. Right. And they fight it. And it turns out the thing has like dragon breath and it'll sprout wings and it has a big old tail of a scorpion. You know, I'm just making it up now, but (laughs) you get the idea, right? Like there's no other time for them to meet that weird ass creature. And so when they do meet that weird creature, that's the time. And it's just some random encounter, but it's a great like set piece. So here it is, kick its butt. But like we were all saying, the reason that works is because it's not every single encounter. It is because, you know, any right. any of the encounters, combat or otherwise, have multiple reasons. They're not all combat. They will advance the plot. They will foreshadow stuff. They'll, you know, give you clues and all kinds of things. And so, so yeah, it is. So respect to the dmg for pointing that out in in a very clear and right up front way of like this is not all about fighting just because it's an encounter that doesn't mean it's a fight and just because it is either a fight or an encounter doesn't mean it has to just be random and have no purpose so that's why it works yep yeah so do we want to uh throw down some uh final thoughts and then we'll We'll sign out. Um, so, so sure, yeah. Um, as we keep saying, man, the, the tables in this chapter are amazing. Um, like, literally, the only one that I don't find just massively inspiring out of all of the tables in here is the one with uh, moral moral quandaries, because the the names are sort of so brief that you have to go to the next section to see what they're trying to tell you. Um, and they could have made a better table for they, each they of those sections. They, right? they could have. Uh, but like side quests, twists, adventure instructions, adventure climax, other goals. Oh my gosh. Actually, these are all amazing. Like there, there's a very reasonable sort of, okay, I guess I'm going to try to publish some adventures in the DMs guild <laughs> I'm literally just going to take the bones of my adventure from this and then start putting some meat on it and see what happens. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that, that's, that's not a terrible idea to try to wind up with some combinations that no one's done before. That could work. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. And especially when I remember that the purpose of this chapter is really geared towards beginner or first time DMs or, you know, still young DMs. It is overall really, really good. The issues that we have are, some of them are very specific, but a lot of it is just wanting more. And with the understanding that this is supposed to be a, this is supposed to be a self-contained thing that gives enough information to get a beginner DM started down the right path to get them working on the right uh, questions. And it it can't go into too much detail about any specific thing because it'll just be overwhelming. I think overall it's excellent. And uh, some of the issues that we have are just the, um, the providence of time. <laughs> The, you know, oh, we know so much more about how encounter building really should work. And, you know. Uh, oh, for but, sure. For but sure. I think as, a, as a, a new DM, 
who's just started running adventures coming to this, there's a lot of really clear direction. There's a lot of really good questions. There's a lot of really good options. And it is, it is broken down in enough detail to get me started without going into so much that I'm get, that I get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I agree with both of you. Um, I feel like I'm, I feel like in the first two chapters we actually talked about during the during the recording about who the intended audience of the chapters is, right? Like who who are they intending to speak to? And I think it's really clear though in this chapter that they're intending to speak to a DM who is newer and really wants to understand how you might go about building an adventure and what goes into that. And the chapter's not perfect. And it's, I mean, you could turn that chapter into a whole 300 page book on its mm -hmm. own, right? With uh, 20 times more tables and a ton more ideas and a great deal of advice and all that stuff. And I'm not knocking it for that. I'm just saying like, it's really hard to write a 17 page chapter that has every single thing in it. When you're talking about creating an adventure, it's just not possible in 17 pages. However, they did a really decent job of it. And I feel like there's enough solid stuff in there that even an experienced DM, it has some tips that are good to be reminded of, even if you already like us have had years and years and years of experience DMing. And so I think in that case, it's a win. I think there's some really great information in there. When you get three experienced DMs like the three of us cooing and eyeing over the framing event table, right, and coming up with an entire adventure idea in about a minute and a half, I mean, that tells you something about the quality of this chapter. Uh, I, I did remember that there was one thing I um... – sort of highlighted just as we were going into this that uh, slipped my mind as we, as we hit it. So can I circle back real quick? Absolutely. So the adventure patrons table, <laughs> I have to laugh because this is going to get expanded into, Tasha's. into Eberron and yeah. Tasha's. And those are going to proceed to be my favorite sections in both of those books. <laughs> well, and and to uh, piggyback off of what you just said a couple times and where we brought up how nice a session zero would be and how these are things you'll want to talk to your players. You know, they finally put some session zero stuff in Tasha's, you know, so a lot of that is there, mm -hmm. too. So obviously, we are not the first people to come and look at the DMG and go, you know what this is missing? <laughs> <laughs> right. Sure. Sure. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Lauren, for uh, for showing up. <laughs> sure. I was happy weird. to be here and just show up and, and then rant at you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no, it's perfect. I love it. Um, but where can people find you on the internet? Oh, well, you can find me. I am Lauren Urban. I go by Obalorn on Twitter. That's usually the best place to follow me. I am the community manager for Idol Champions of the Forgotten Realms. So come on by and play a D&D based adventure game, which I love. Uh, I'm also, uh, you might have heard me referencing Orkira, my Dragonborn cleric. She's currently on D4, which plays on Sundays on the Rock Punch ATL channel and on <laughs> I played the same character also on Tuesdays on the Demiplane RPG <laughs> channel uh, for reasons. And yeah, come come by. And I <laughs> on my Twitter, I usually talk about D&D and music stuff and every once in a while snacks. Awesome. And Brandis, my friend, thank you also for showing up. <laughs> well, I'm very happy to be here. Um, it's great to get to talk to you, Lauren. 
Um, you as well. And congratulations on um, the the publishing of Candlekeep Adventures. I, I It has been, I know for a lot of people, it's been a long time coming. So it must feel good to have it out into the world. Oh, it's it's incredible. It's it's wonderful to have it out there and to get you know, the, the positive response that it's gotten. Um, I'm I'm glad that people get to meet the characters that I had these ideas about. Um, also, I have a new product out in the DMs Guild to all my listeners. Um, it's called Level Up Your Background, and I hope you'll check it out. Um, yeah, I'm shamelessly shamelessly self promoting. <laughs> what you gotta do sorry folks don't, don't be sorry i mean um, i just did it for a whole 30 seconds myself so you go for it yeah <laughs> um so so in this product uh i'm talking about how to change your background when it doesn't represent who your characters become and how to advance into an advanced background which is a, a new set of features that sit on top of your existing background uh to talk about how your status has changed in society um and then there's also um, new downtime activities and such to go along with that. And so I hope you will check it out. Uh, it's on the DMs Guild for $3.95. And where can we find you on the internet? <laughs> on the internet, you can find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. You can find me uh, at writing for tribality.com. You can find me writing for my own blog, which is brendastoddard.com. And my Patreon is Brenda Stoddard. Excellent. And you, Sam. I am DM Samuel, and you can find me at DM Samuel on Twitter, and you can find me at RPGmusings.com. And I also have a product on the DMs Guild, which is on its way to being a silver bestseller right now. It's called The Creed of Oral, and it is a companion document that will help you in- insert the uh, Cult of Oral and the Church of Oral into your Rime of the Frostmaiden game. So you can check that out on the DMs Guild as well. So uh i that's a wrap this was a great conversation thank you so much um uh, i hope that the audience is enjoying us going through the dmg as much as i feel like we are enjoying it yeah um, absolutely it's, it's the conversations are a ton of fun i hope, I hope it's a good listen yeah excellent all right well i think um, that means we're going to sign out yes sir yep i i have a couple of things i want to say in my sign out yes please do they're now traditional but there is a new one. First of all, end ICE detention facilities and family separation. Black lives matter. Trans lives matter. Stop Asian hate. Wear your mask. I would like to echo all of those things. Yes, I usually do too, but he said there was a new one, so I couldn't say it all along with him. <laughs> I wasn't sure, wasn't sure what he was adding. <laughs> we didn't practice this. Is it? Yeah. No. Um, but yes, audience, all of that, everything Brandis just said. Absolutely. And I think that's going to take us out. 